Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland, so that we can help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. You can always join us in person each Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 here on our beautiful campus in Rock Spring, Georgia. Amen. Thank you, Danny and Choir. Great job leading us in worship today. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2? Matthew chapter 2. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Um, if uh, uh, It's about 60% of the way, 65% of the way through your Bible, uh, New Testament. First book in Matthew chapter 2. So I started a series a few weeks ago entitled Origin, and so I love that song the choir just sang because it kind of tells the whole gospel Jesus story, um, birth to coming again. And so we know the end of the story. Uh, We know, maybe not all the details, but we know that in the end we win, right? Like we know that in the end Jesus is coming again the way we just sang, and we know that we win. You know, you just hate to say it that way, but... I'm on the winning side is a song we used to sing in church, and so I'm glad to be on the winning side. It's like being a Georgia football fan, right? I'm on the winning side, and uh, I'm not on the losing side like some other teams, and so uh, I'm on the winning side, and so um, we know the end of the story, but, but for the end of the story, there's always a beginning, and it's always, it seems different. As a matter of fact, we call it the origin story, and, and the origin stories, even in today in the movies, the origin, uh, uh, the origin stories, even in, say, uh, Avenger-type movies, they copy the, the theme of the story of Jesus, a, a lowly beginning until a glorious end. And so we've been going back looking at the origin story, and we've looked at the announcement of the angel to Mary. Last week we looked at the shepherds, and this week I want us to look at the story of the wise men, one of the more famous, uh, if not the most famous story of this Christmas season. Before I dive into the text, let me just go ahead and burst your bubble that while ladies, you are carefully and meticulously picking out Christmas presents for those you love, chances are whatever gift you buy is going to end right back up at the store you bought it from. They did study last year and determined that, get this, 54% of all holiday gifts were either taken back, altered, or exchanged for something else. 54%. The most exchanged gifts were candy, gum, and chocolate. Now, I'll be honest, if you bought somebody gum for Christmas, you get what you deserve, right? I mean, like, but for women, the most exchanged gifts were toddler clothes and sweaters. Now, that doesn't mean that they were traded in and got something else. It could be that, according to Gift Now, who did the research, it could be that they were traded in for different sizes, So here's what that means, lady. You told somebody to buy you a small. And then you took it back and got the extra small that actually fit. 
For guys, it was dress shirts and athletic apparel that saw the most exchanges. The most, the least return gifts for men were ties, not worth the effort, wallets, and this is the one that surprises me. The least returned gift for men. I could, we could sit here till 2018 and you would not guess this. The least returned gift for men, anti-aging skin care. <laughs> so a couple of things. That's awkward, number one. And number two, what am I supposed to do when you give me a package of anti-aging skin care? What are you trying to tell me when you give me that gift, right? And so men actually kept the gift. The most surprising thing they uncovered in their gift, in their, in their research was men are actually more picky. Only 37% of the gifts given to men are kept and women keep 48% of their gifts. We, we struggle over what to get someone and it almost doesn't matter because they're going to take it back anyway. You say, why do we even fool with gifts? Because this gift giving kind of has its origin in the story we read today. The story of the wise men who we know brought their gifts to Jesus. To Jesus. And this Matthew chapter 2 is, is not just the story of, of the wise men giving gifts to Jesus, but it's the story of God giving his gift to man, his only begotten son. But what we learn in Matthew chapter 2 is not everyone reacted well to the story of the baby in a manger. So I want to preach this morning on do you see what I see from Matthew chapter 2. Would you stand with me as we honor God's word by reading it? Matthew chapter 2, and I, I'll preach in a hurry this morning, but I, I want to read the whole chapter. It's a little, it's just 23 verses, but... But it sets the stage. I'm going to use almost every verse in there very quickly. So I want you to hear the story as it lays out and unfolds in Matthew chapter 2. Look, look beginning in verse number 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. When you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed and behold the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. 
Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Thank you. You may be seated. Hey, so let me walk you through the story. I'm just going to retell the story, maybe a little bit more of today's language, and I'll make a couple of observations on this subject. Do you see what I see? This is probably the most famous guest that emerged during the birth of Christ, but there's a lot of misconceptions and misinformation. I'll talk about a little bit of that as we go. Here we have these wise men opening up on the scene and they appear at the palace of Jerusalem and they say in the palace of Jerusalem, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? Now that's a really risky thing to say to the king. So they're saying to the king, where is the guy, the baby that has been born the king of the Jews? Their assumption was that a king would be born to a king in a palace. But it's not true for Herod. Now, who were these wise men and how would they know about Jewish Jewish messianic expectation? Matthew tells us that they came from the east, that they were looking for the one born king of the Jews. They apparently in their lives had been exposed to Old Testament prophecies from Jewish colonies. So what in all probability has happened is these wise men are from Babylon and there had been a deportation of the Jews from Israel to Babylon. If you read the book of Daniel, that's where Daniel was in the book of Daniel in Babylon. And there had been a great revival in the book of Daniel. And so no doubt there were Jewish worship synagogues still up in uh, 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 Babylon. And these wise men were at least familiar with the prophecies of the Jews. There would have been significant learning centers about Jewish religion. And so these wise men in all probability came from the east, but in all probability came from Babylon because there was a large Jewish population there. Now, we don't really know much about the wise men. They're also called magi. Uh, We we love to sing about them at the holidays, and and we sing, uh, we three kings of Orient are. A couple problems with that. They're not kings, and there were more than three of them. And so we get three because they presented three gifts. We get three because typically about all you can get is three camels in a church during a play, right? Like you can't get get a flock of camels in a church. And so we we stuck with three. But uh, more than three, there would have been an enormous caravan traveling. 
And the three gifts that they gave were, um, uh, uh, would have not just been three small boxes. There had been an enormous amount of treasury. I'll talk about that in a moment. But they were called magi, which meant they may have been dream interpreters. They would have specialized in astronomy. There's very little doubt that that takes place. There is some debate, but they were following a star to Jerusalem. Now, what was this star? Some say it was the alignment of Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars in 6 BC. And that would make sense, except in verse number 9, the star goes the opposite direction. So in all probability, it's not a... A, a star that we would see in the sky today, but it was a special revelation of God that was used to guide the wise man to that one who had been born king of the Jews. And you say, well, can God put a special star in the sky to lead a band of wise men? Of course he can. He led the children of Israel with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So there's no problem with God using a star to guide the wise men to the birth of his son. And so we find out by the time we get down to verse number 7 that that they are there to worship this Jesus. Now it's interesting that just for the record, astrology and astronomy were, were arts that were really in contempt by the Bible. It's interesting that God took pagan, maybe believers, but Gentiles for sure, and gave them the revelation of his son. And what we discover, beginning about verse number three, is that his own people did not even know, nor were they looking. Now, when they get to verse number three, we have a real problem. They have told Herod that they are looking for the next king of the Jews. There could not have been worse news in the palace for Herod to hear than they were looking for the next king of the Jews. Why is that? Because in 7 BC, Herod murdered two of his own sons because he was afraid they were trying to get to the throne. In 4 BC, he murdered another son because he was afraid he was trying to get to the throne. He killed uncles. He killed in-laws. He killed prominent Pharisees. When anybody gained popularity, Herod had them killed because he was afraid they were trying to get to the throne. As a matter of fact, Caesar Augustus, who's ruling Rome at the time, made this statement about Herod. He said, I would rather be Herod's pig than one of his sons. But here we have Herod, who is the leader of the Jews, who knows nothing about the scriptures when the wise men show up. And so he calls the Sanhedrin together and he asks them, where's the Messiah to be born? And they quoted Micah 5.2, that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So Herod called the wise men together for a secret meeting because he didn't want anybody else to know what was going on. And he asked them when the star appeared. And he said, listen, he didn't tell them this, but here's what he's thinking in his mind. I'll get them to do my dirty work for, for me. And so he tells them in verse number eight, he says, hey, you go find the king of the Jews. And when you find him, you bring him back and I'm going to worship him myself. 
Now, for a guy that's murdered uh, three of his sons, some of his in-laws, some uncles, and anybody else who was very popular, uh, there was no chance Herod was going to worship the king of the Jews. So beginning in verse number 9, the star reappeared again. And that carried them over to Bethlehem. And the story, as I move quickly, the, the, the Bible says, ended with incredible joy. And they found Jesus settled in a house at this point. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. The wise men did not go see Jesus in the manger. Jesus was in all probability one to two years old by the time the wise men got there. Not only that, not only do we know it based on what's going to happen in just a moment, but also that Mary and Joseph were living in a house at the time. That's what the scripture says. So Jesus was not a, a small baby in a manger, though we, that's how we present it. He was a toddler between one and two years old. And they found the baby Jesus. They worshiped him as king and they gave him three gifts. And I don't have time to get into all this, but the gifts had significance. They gave him gold, which suggested royalty. They gave him frankincense, which was used as an offering to the gods that suggested divinity. And they gave him myrrh, which was an expensive ointment that was used in embalming people at death which was a suggestion of his mission, his death on the cross. Now, you can't read too much into the gifts in all probability. We know that they worship God with their giving, but the gifts were given, as we find out in just a moment, to help finance the trip in Jesus' childhood. And so they find Jesus, they give him these gifts, they worship the Son of God, and then they disappear from the pages of the Bible. The Bible simply says they go back to the east and there are all kinds of legends about who the wise men were, but we know nothing about them. We just know they disappear from the pages of the scripture. And legend have sprung up about them, but none of it can be confirmed as true. So God told them to go a different way. In beginning verse number 13, God warned Joseph that Herod was going to try to kill the child and go to Egypt. And so that fulfilled a prophecy. Then in verse number 16, we find out that Herod saw that he was deceived. The word in the Greek literally means outwitted by the wise men. And so he calculated that at the most, the baby could be two years old. And so Herod sent soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all the male children, two years old and under. We call it the slaughter of the innocents. Matthew quotes a passage from Jeremiah about the mourning of Rachel, but Bethlehem was a city that was only about maybe five to six miles from Jerusalem. Historians tell us it maybe had 1,000 to 2,000 people in it, just a small village, and that there were probably 20-plus babies who were murdered on that day. Herod was so protective of his throne that he was willing to exterminate Little babies. And so that leads us into the end of the story, verse 19. The Bible starts off with really two, you hate to say it, but what are almost beautiful words. Now when Herod was dead. Josephus tells us in history, let me tell you what a cruel tyrant Herod was. That he died when he was 69 years old and he died of a very painful feverish illness that lasted for a little while. And he, he went to a place called Calerho, which was hot springs that flowed into the Dead Sea. 
and he, he bathed himself there, and he knew he was about to die. So get this, Herod knew when he was about to die that no one would mourn his death. So here's what he did. He had his sister and her husband, Salome and Alexis, assemble all of the Jewish prominent leaders in Jericho and imprison them in an arena. And he said to his sister, the moment I die, I want you to murder all of the Jews in that arena. So that way, during my death and funeral, Jerusalem will be mourning. It won't be for me, but at least I'll know tears will be shed during my death. And so they assembled all the Jewish leaders into the arena in Jericho. Herod died. But because Salome feared the Jews, and she was terrified in the absence of a leader that the Jews would revolt and take her life, she freed all of the prisoners. And no one mourned the death of Herod. And his kingdom was divided up between three sons and a daughter. And the Bible tells us, and history does as well, that Archelaus was reigning in Judah, and he reigned with the same terror of his father Herod. And so Jesus turned aside, Joseph turned aside, took Jesus to Nazareth, Galilee, a city called Nazareth, and there he raised Jesus from childhood on up. It's the story, all of that is the story of the wise man. Now what a, what a tumultuous start. Here's what I want to focus on in that passage. I see at least... Three very distinct reactions, and you'll hear me use the phrase to the baby born in a manger. I'm using that because it's Christmas time, not that the wise men saw him in a manger, but, but that's the phraseology you'll just hear me use. It's kind of ingrained into me. But when you read all of chapter 23, you see the, the, the attitudes of they're not seeing what I see when I look in a manger. So let me show you this morning in this origin story the reactions to a baby born in a manger. Number one, here's what I see. Number one, here's what you need to know. The fakers will fake. You say, what do you mean, preacher, the fakers will fake? Well, we see that in verses three through six. Because in verses three through six, you had this whole religious crowd who knew nothing of the coming of Jesus. They were not looking for him to come. They were not interested in his coming. They didn't know any of the details whatsoever. And this was the religious crowd who was supposed to be looking for the Christ and the Messiah. This is the crowd in verses 3 through 6 that Jesus will condemn more than any other crowd in his ministry. When you read the Gospels, what you notice is Jesus spends very little time angry at the sinners. He spends an enormous amount of time angry at the hypocrites, the fakers, the religious crowd, the self-righteous, those who weren't really interested in God. They were just interested in maintaining their way of life. They were interested in their control. They were interested in their kingdoms. And so when you get to chapter 3, you see the chief priests and the Sanhedrin. Listen, they are going to be the fakers from here on out. They are the religious crowd that Jesus always says, hey, they, I don't know who these people are. They know nothing about God. And over and over again, Jesus calls out their hypocrisy. Over and over again, Jesus calls out their, their 
faking uh, religion. And so here's what I want to tell you today. The world is full of that today. Can I be honest? The church is full of that today. Religion without relationship. And it's fake. People who claim to know Jesus, but in reality only know of him. That was what was going on with the chief priests and the Sanhedrins. They could have told you all about God. They could have told you all about the coming of the Christ. They could have told you everything you needed to know. In the Old Testament, they had it memorized. They had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. But the problem is they only knew about God They didn't really know God. And can I say to you that there are people like that in the world today who are infatuated with their religion and they know a lot about God. Not all of it's true, but they don't know the God. But before we bash people outside the walls too much, inside our walls, we are full of people on the church roll. Billy Graham said the greatest mission field in America is the church roll. People who know of Jesus, but don't really know him. Can I tell you this morning that there is a big difference between knowing of him and knowing him. I don't know if you know it or not, but Donald Trump is our president. Anybody know that? I don't care what side you're on, uh, or if you don't care, Donald Trump is our president. So I subscribed, I don't know if you know this or not, if some of you don't know this, I subscribed, Donald Trump likes Twitter. And so I subscribed to Donald Trump's tweets. And I feel like he and I are close. <laughs> I do, he tweets a lot. As a matter of fact, I wake up early in the mornings and I kid you not, normally when I wake up, uh, I'll turn my phone on and it'll start buzzing and my wife will say, who's that? And I'll say, oh, it's Donald Trump. He's just tweeting away early in the mornings. He's tweeting away late at night. I'll sit there and I'll look at his tweets and uh, uh, I'll say, oh, Lord. Or I'll say, you know, that's awesome or something. I mean, I always have some kind of reaction, but I'm looking at it. And I mean, honestly, almost any day of the week, did you know this? I can tell you where he is because he tells me. Any day of the week, I can tell you who he's with because he tells me. Any day of the week, I can tell you who he's mad at because he tells me. Any day of the week, I can tell you what fake news is coming out today. How do I know all that? Because he and I are tight. He tells me every single day, hour and minute. I know Donald Trump because I follow him on Twitter. But can I be honest? I don't really know Donald Trump. I know a lot about him, and I know of him. But I don't really know Donald Trump. And can I be honest that there are, this world is full of people that are faking religion 
every day of their lives. And the fact is, they can answer all the questions about God. They know all the questions about Jesus. But the church is full of people that are faking because here's the, the deal. They know of him. But they don't know And it's confirmed in the Bible because in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. How can somebody say, I, I, I did this for God and I did this for God and I know this about God and I can quote the Bible and I can tell you, listen, the fakers will fake. That's what they were doing in Matthew chapter two. They, they didn't know God. They just knew a lot about God. And I'm trying to tell you that there are people in the church today that they know the rules and they know the regulations and they know the thou shalts and thou shalt nots and they know when to stand in church and they know when to pray and they know when to sing. And you can fake it down here, but listen, a reckoning day is coming. The fakers don't see what I see when they look in the manger. They see somebody they know about, but they don't see somebody they know. And listen, I want to tell you, church, it is not enough to know about Jesus. We're brought up in the South, many of you born and raised in the South, and we know so much about him that sometimes it clouds our minds, and we forget we don't know him. So the first thing we see when we look at the story is that the fakers will fake. The second thing we see in the story is the haters will hate so you have this next group, and that is those who despise Jesus. Herod is leading the charge for this group. He didn't want to let go of his own throne. He didn't want to let go of his power. And so he was willing to murder babies in order to get rid of Jesus. And Herod despised Jesus because he was a threat to his power. He was a threat to his kingdom. And he didn't want Jesus interfering with anything in his world. He didn't want Jesus messing up what he had going on. And listen, very quickly, we live in a world that feels the same about Jesus today. We live in a world that is hating Christianity, is hating the name of Christ, is hating the name of Jesus more and more every day. Our beliefs are ridiculed. Our standards of morality that are derived straight from the Bible are now labeled as hate-mongering. I read an article this week and it was called America's New Minority. And it was talking about how Christians are the new minority in America because no longer will we stand up for our beliefs because the minute we do, even when we do it in love and do it in logic, we're labeled as people who hate other people. Christianity is labeled as narrow-minded and judgmental and here's what I want to tell you this morning, church. The haters are going to hate. Can I say something to you that's hard for me to reconcile? 
Can I, can I tell you this, and it's hard for me to live with what I'm about to tell you. The fact is, there are some people in this world that are never, ever going to be one to Christ. They are going to hate no matter what we say or do. There are people who are on the other side who are going to stay on the other side, and they are going to shake their fist at God until their dying breath. That's hard for me to reconcile. It's hard for me to understand that when somebody is presented with the logic of the gospel, they'd continue to shake their fist at God and hate the one who died for them. And I'm not telling you everybody who's against God today is going to die and go to hell. I'm just telling you this world is always going to be a hater. Sometimes people get so entrenched on the other team, they're just not going to switch sides. You, you know, I don't mean to be so simplistic, but it's the same in college football, right? Like, you, you, what, what's the old saying in Auburn and in, in Alabama? They don't ask you where you're from, they ask you who you're for. There's never a situation where an Auburn fan is going to say, I hope Alabama wins. There's never a situation where an Alabama fan says, I hope Auburn wins. There's never a situation where uh, Georgia says, I hope Tennessee wins. There's never a situation where a Tennessee fan says, maybe we'll get a win. You know, something like that. Because you get so entrenched rooting for your side, you, you get blinders on sometimes. And that is exactly what's happening with Herod. I read this this week. Actually, I had a copy of the letter on the internet. I had a picture of it, and I didn't bring it. I should have brought it. But this was a letter sent out at the University of Minnesota this year where they said, Santa Claus Christmas trees in the colors red and green are examples of inappropriate religious iconography during the holiday season. They gave a paper out called Respecting Religious Diversity. And Jewish Hanukkah is targeted too with menorahs and the color blue and white as described as being not appropriate. Here's what the letter said. For your parties, consider neutral themed parties such as winter celebration, decorations, music, and food should be general and not specific to any one religion. Food? Food? What food represents Christmas? Like, I hope a pot roast is not in that, you know, because like, The handout listed over a dozen items not appropriate for gathering and displays at this time of year. The items included, get this, bows, angels, Christmas trees, dreidels, nativity scenes, wrapped gifts, menorahs, bells, doves, Santa Claus, and the Star of Bethlehem. It listed that you should avoid the colors 
Red, green, blue, and white. And the letter signed off saying all of this was in the name of inclusivity. We want to be inclusive, so we're going to eliminate Christianity. It's the most backwoods form of logic possible. It makes no sense whatsoever. How can you reconcile that in the name of inclusion, we're eliminating because the haters are going to hate. Can I tell you this morning, there's nothing we can do to make the world cheer for Jesus. The government is not going to be on our side. All the atheists are not going to convert. There's some of you here this morning that you aren't really buying in the whole Jesus thing. You would see yourself as being on the other team. But I want to tell you this morning that there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the fact is that you may hate now. When you look in the manger, you don't see what I see. But I'm telling you, there is coming a day when Jesus will rule and reign. The fakers are going to fake. The haters are going to hate. Number three, the wise will worship. Finally, we have the right reaction to the manger in Bethlehem. Here's what it is. The wise men worship. Verse number two. I'll, I'll finish quickly. We, verse number two, they said, we've come to worship him. Verse number 10, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Verse 11, they fell down and worshiped him. Verse 11, they opened their treasures and gave him uh, gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The wise men had the exact reaction to Jesus that they should. Here's what it was. They bowed down, they worshiped, and they gave. They bowed down, they worshiped, and they gave. They looked into the the manger in Bethlehem figuratively and they saw the savior of the world and rightly so the Bible says that they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Why? Because that baby is born in Bethlehem. I don't have to die and go to hell. Because that baby is born in Bethlehem my sins can be forgiven. Because that baby born in Bethlehem I can have a right relationship with God. That baby was born to be the savior of the world who all would accept him. And what you see is the God of the universe sending his love to you and the whole world. When you see it the right way, it changes your reaction. Close your Bibles, I'll tell you a story. Um, I, don't, I don't like being scared. You, you know how some people like to jump out from behind doors uh, and scare people, I, I usually punch people that do that. Like, I, I, don't, I don't like that. It's not my favorite thing. I have a negative reaction to that. Now, I know it's funny. I don't mind being on the jumping end of it. But typically, because I don't like being on the receiving end, I don't do it on the jumping end. just not my thing. With my wife, it has taken her years to figure that out. Matter of fact, I was pastor of my first church. We were in our 20s. And I had an office door at our church that, that I had an entrance from the outside. And so you could, you had, a, had an outside door, you could walk into my office from my outside door. One day during the day, my wife had been at the church having a vacation Bible school meeting and she had uh, people in my office and uh, three or four of them, good, godly, decent, God-fearing, uh, holy people. And my wife looked at them and said, I just heard Joel's car door sh shut. And uh, she said, watch this. 
So I'm sauntering up to my door, not knowing anybody's in my office. I got a briefcase in my hand, and I open the door, and the minute I open the door, Sherry jumps out of her office and screams at the top of her lungs. I reacted poorly. Before I knew what I had done, I, there were people in my office, this is, uh, this is not right before God. I screamed at her, what are you doing? What in the world? Why would you? I mean, I just flew into her and she had this big grin on her face that quickly turned into a frown. And I was seething in my anger. And Sherry just shut the door on me. <laughs> so now I'm on outside holding my briefcase. And I say, uh-oh. Because <laughs> I not only reacted poorly, I'd embarrassed her in front of other people. And so I, I tried to fake it. I opened the door and I'm like, that's funny how I got you on that, didn't you? She's like, yeah, it's funny. <laughs> We're going to move our Bible school meeting in another room. Hey, Sherry, you need anything to drink or anything? I mean, I, I, go, I go to no, no, we're good. We're good. Before the day was over, um, I was at the altar. Uh, just not, no, no relation. And so I was at the altar praying. And uh, before the day was over, my wife was getting gifts bought for her. But here's the deal. I gave her a different reaction than she anticipated getting. See, if you had said to me, Sherry's going to open the door and scream at you, I'd have said, I'll go in a different door. Right? Like I, I, but I, I could have measured a reaction. But when she opened the door and screamed, I didn't see it the way she saw it as a funny joke. And it changed my reaction. The reason I tell you that story is because when you look in the manger, if you see it the right way, it changes your reaction. See, when you look in the manger, if you see God's love for you laying in the manger, it causes me to worship. If you look in the manger and you see it the right way, a Savior that will die for me, it causes me to worship. If you look in the manger and you see a God who will rise from the dead, who will empower me, it causes me to worship. If I look in the manger and see a Redeemer who will intercede for me, it causes me to worship. If I look in the manger and see a King who is coming for me, it causes me to worship. What do you see when you look in the manger? Some people look in the manger and they see rules and regulations that are meant to build their religion. It's never, ever what God wanted you to see. God wanted you to see a Savior who loves you. Some people look in the manger and they see a, a baby that's come to disrupt their world. No, 
It's a Savior who loves you. And depending on what you see, it changes your reaction to Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, I'm not asking you if you know about Jesus. As a matter of fact, I could pass out a Jesus test today and you would pass. I could pass out a questionnaire about Jesus, you'd make a hundred. Fact is, there's no questionnaire about Jesus in heaven. There's just a question. Do you know him? Not do you know about him, but do you know him? So the question is not, is your name on a church roll? The question is not, do you sing in the choir? question is not, do you teach a Sunday school class? question is not, do you do any of those kind of things in the church? Do you know him? Because when I look in the manger, I see a Savior who died for me and rose again and is coming again and lives today causes me to want to know and to worship him. What about you? I know it's a serious question. I, I know it's a tough question. I know that if you're caught up in the knowing about Jesus, that making that transition is so difficult. But listen, it's well worth it. It's well worth it. Let's just not know about him. Let's know him. You could be here today. You, you don't know about him. You don't know him. And to you, that baby born in a manger is just, just that, a baby born in a manger. No, that's the Savior of the world. And he's asking you to accept him as the Savior of the world. So while our heads are bowed, eyes are closed, if you'd like to trust Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life today and know him, it's as simple as ABC. A, admit that you can't save yourself. You're a sinner. You can't work your way to heaven, earn your way to heaven. None of us can. None of us ever will. B, you've got to believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day. And C, you've got to call out to him and confess him as Lord and Savior of your life. And if you'd like to do that just now, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. You can pray out loud or in your heart, it doesn't matter. But if your desire is to trust Jesus today and to know him, I want you to pray with me just now. You, 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 may don't, you maybe don't need me to pray. That's fine. You just pray. But if you need some help expressing your heart's desire this morning, I want to help you. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Just say something like this. Dear Lord Jesus. I know that I cannot save myself. I know that Christ died on the cross so I could be saved and rose again on the third day. So just now, I invite Jesus into my life to forgive me of my sins and to save me. I trust Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, while our heads bowed and eyes closed, here's what I want you to do. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week, helping you to apply God's Word to your daily life. For more information about Peavine, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at our website, www.peavine.org. Thanks for listening.